Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. I'm Ishani. I'm Mary Clay. This is episode 35, One Does Not Simply Order the Hour of Your Own Death. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. All right. So in this chapter, which is chapter seven of book five, not all that much happens, but the thing that happens sure is a big thing, which is that Pippin finds Gandalf and says, you need to come quick because some shit's about to go down. And he explains what's been going on with Denethor and Faramir. And Gandalf takes a moment to deliberate and then ultimately confronts and then stops Denethor from killing Faramir with a couple of people's help. Uh, And then, as we all know, Denethor says, well, screw you, and kills himself anyways. Um, And that's kind of the bulk of this chapter. But never fear, we have something to make sure that we fill your time in an interesting way. And that is our guest for today. And do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your relationship with Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Hi. Uh, first of all, I don't. It's funny. I, I have guests on my podcast all the time, but I don't really guest on other people's podcasts a lot. So this is fun. Hi, everyone. My name is Mary Clay, and I host a podcast called That's What I'm Tolkien About, where I've been experiencing the world of J.R.R. Tolkien for the first time. I started um, about two and a half years ago with a chapter by chapter read through of Lord of the Rings. They making my way through the movies, then The Hobbit, then The Hobbit movies. And now I am currently reading The Silmarillion, which is quite a, it's a lot. (laughs) You're getting in there with the real experts, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I, it's, it's nuts. The people who I've had on so far, the way, like they know so much and I'm just like, the parts of my brain that are just empty <laughs> and like so much useless <laughs> stuff where like I know all the words to uh, All Star by Smash Mouth and I could probably like Same. watch <laughs> Shrek and quote it <laughs> without like the sound playing but these people instead like know all of these like lineages and like pronunciations and names of all of these geographical locations and like the history of like what this place once was and what it grows into be and I'm just like, oh, my God, this is like Tolkien. It was just (laughs) too much of a man. He he just had too much going on in that head. In actuality, though, is that information any more useful than the lyrics to All Star? This (laughs) is true. This is true. If I found out that the guy from Smash Mouth knew uh, knew Cinderin uh, or Quenya, then I think it would be over for everybody else. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Have you seen the guy from Smash Mouth? Trust me, he doesn't know any of these things. (laughs) Hey, you don't know. Don't make assumptions. Though, okay, now that you've said that, I'm really curious because I think for us, so we've all read the books before and now we're doing this read through again. So a lot of the the dramatic moments are not necessarily or aren't at all surprises for us because 
we knew that they were coming before we ever talked about them on the pod. And so, like, this is a pretty big dramatic moment where, like, it is definitely a a turning point. It is definitely a decision point. And Oh, yeah, a decision is made for sure. (laughs) Right. Like, what was your reaction to that? Or what's your reaction, like, coming back to it? Well, Tolkien spoiled this part because he named the chapter the Pyre of Denethor. And so when I was... um, like plant you know sitting down to start return of the king and writing out like the schedule and trying to coordinate guests and and all of that and i look down the the list and there is i mean for the most part these are all the chapter names minas tirith the passing of the gray company the muster of rohan the siege of gondor great don't really give anything away pretty much nothing about any of these chapter titles, except for the Pyre of Denethor, gives anything away. And so I was like, so is I, I'm assuming Denethor dies. I didn't <laughs> on a pyre, perhaps. Yeah, well, I was like, okay, maybe he dies and then as a funeral, because I know that like in a lot of mythical cultures, especially, like sending out the person, especially uh if they're like uh, a lord or a king or something, they'll send, you know, like Viking like a Viking funeral, you know, you send them out into the sea and then someone shoots a a fire arrow and lights the ship on fire. And so I was like, okay, I'm assuming Denethor dies at some point because he has a yeah. pyre. But the way that he goes out <laughs> is just so like A plus. I so okay, so so <laughs> I'm getting so like excited because this like the siege of Gondor, the Battle of Pelennor Field. That's my favorite part of the story. Like this group of like three or four chapters is the best part of the story, in my opinion. Like screw Frodo and Sam. I really don't care about their side side of the story. (laughs) I don't know about y'all, but. No, we literally started having guests on the podcast in order to get through the second half of Two Towers. because we're like, So we're on the same page then. Yeah. (laughs) I I did want to ask like kind of as a follow-up to that question, what what do you think was, in your experience reading it, the biggest plot twist where you were, like, just not expecting that to happen? Hmm. I got spoiled that Boromir died. Like, I spoiled myself. I was Google searching something, and then a YouTube clip said, like, the death of Boromir, and it was, like, the third recommended video. And I was like, well, thank you, Google. <laughs> the thing is, though, is that I didn't know when he was going to die, and... I get to the end of Fellowship of the Ring and nothing happens. And then the start of Two Towers, the first chapter is called The Departure of Boromir. And also, I'm not a big Boromir fan. I actually notoriously hate him. And I understand that's a hot take. (laughs) But (laughs) I mean, our surprise hot take from from this podcast has been that we all kind of actually ended up hating Aragorn a little bit. Whoa, that is a hot take because he, I would say besides Faramir, which we'll get into, he, Aragorn's definitely one of my favorite boys. Have you seen the movies though? You have watched yes. the movies at this point, right? Yeah. Did you like Aragorn before you watched the movie? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. I definitely, I, I would say the movie strengthened my feelings for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all yeah. have been like big Aragorn fangirls throughout 
the history of our engagement with this series. So this has been the surprise finding of like reading yeah. this in detail and actually discussing it. Yeah, I don't. That doesn't surprise me though, because there are. I do remember like there are a couple things that Aragorn does in the book that um, I would like post about on Instagram, and people be like, "What are you talking about?" Um, because it's different from what happens in the movie or how he is in the movie. And I do remember like at one point in I think it's. In Return of the King, I don't know. It's all a blur. When they meet up with Eowyn later on and she's like, can I come with you? And Aragorn's like, no, you have to wait for your father or your brother to give their word, their permission. And I was like, how dare you? I was like, I was rooting for you. I thought you were a feminist. And here you are saying that Eowyn needs a man's permission. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Peter Jackson in the in the in the movie in developing the movies I've all, I've felt like since reading the books again uh, like Peter Jackson kind of understood all right like Aragorn needs like a little bit of a PR boost for being like the hero of the story like he's not quite mm-hmm. he doesn't quite come off good enough and like Boromir for being like you know not the most likable character but also like kind of empathetic when you consider like the broader context he needs like a little bit of a the opposite of a PR boost and that's what they did to them in the movies is is how I have, like, ended up reading that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's there's so much I could talk about. Like, I ended up covering the movies for, like, five months. I originally thought it was just going to be, like, three episodes per movie, and it would just be three months, and that was it. And then I covered it for, like, two or three months longer than I, like, originally meant to. So, like, there was a lot to say. But um, anyway, but yeah, but ba- back to your original question, like, what was a big spoiler or whatever? So... I started this chapter at the start of Two Towers called The Departure of Boromir. And I was like, oh, my God, Boromir's going to do something stupid, isn't he? And he's going to, like, get kicked out of the group or whatever. And then you get to the, I think it's, like, the end of the first page. And he's dead. (laughs) And I was, like, I was laughing a lot because it just took me by surprise. You motherfucker, you got redeemed? Not, and well, like, and not that much in the book, really, because I, I think Peter Jackson's portrayal of his death scene is really great and definitely makes you feel for him. I don't think it redeems Boromir because, like, Mary and Pippin still got captured. Like, he didn't actually do anything. I think he just like <laughs> you're like if there are no results, we do not count a redemption arc. Yeah, like <laughs> we're really results oriented here. <laughs> I don't think it was a redemption because so, so like everyone's telling him we can't use the ring and he didn't like, sure. He was like, yeah, okay, whatever. But like some part of him still thought I can use the ring and he thought he, and you know, that is his downfall, you know, hubris like becomes his downfall that like he thinks he, he's like, well, I can be different. Yeah. 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 This chapter definitely reveals a lot about like, why he is the way he is though because oh yeah oh boy oh my gosh daddy issues abound <laughs> all that being said about boromir you get to the chapter where faramir shows up and i was just like oh my god it's a breath of fresh air it's my favorite boy ever and <laughs> he immediately became my favorite character and so 
like reading this chapter and even when like Denethor is about to like jump on the pyre and set himself on fire he still gets like one last dig in at Faramir as he's like dying at his feet oh my god just like so many feelings and Denethor so anyway so when you guys reached out and said do you want to would you like to come on for a chapter we're at the battle of Pelennor Field siege of Gondor I said Pyre of Denethor because Faramir is my favorite boy ever. And Denethor is one of my favorite characters just in the sense that, like, he adds so much to the story. Like, what he's doing, it, like, if he's involved, it's interesting. It's adding something, a little, like, twist or whatever. And the way he goes out is just so dramatic and over the top. Absolutely live for the drama. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and something that's interesting is that one of the things that all three of us kind of independently reflected on was that Gandalf has this moment of like, he expresses some regret about the way that things wound up with Denethor. And I think all of us kind of sat there and went like, okay, but it's not just as straightforward as Denethor has been influenced by Sauron through the Palantir, and that's why he's done this. And so I think for everybody, right? Like why did it turn out this way? What when you look at all of the pieces, is there one particular thing that you go like, yeah, this is why I feel like it it did shake out the way that it shook out because it does like the movies it's basically very straightforward, right? It's like Denethor has gone round the bend, um cannot be trusted, eats in a horrifying manner and then flings himself off a cliff. And it's more nuanced than that in the book. <laughs> I think the imagery too of him like the flaming fireball off the cliff really like encapsulates how much he had lost it at that point. Yes. That isn't really actually present here. Yeah, like it's ridiculous and I I much prefer the version of what happens in the chapter in the book than PJ's version because him like jumping off like flailing around on fire and running away and jumping off the cliff was a little corny for me. And also in the movie, you see him have like a moment of clarity, like right at the very end where he realizes what he's done, but it's too late. In the book, that doesn't happen at all. He is, like, firm in his decision until the very end. And so I wanted to see him lie down and put the Palantir in his chest and watch the, um, what is it? What is it called? A mausoleum? Yeah, like a mausoleum. That's it. That's it. Um, And it, like, collapses it. And then there's, like, a plume of smoke. Like, that's what I wanted to see. Um, I totally derailed what your question was, though. <laughs> no, but I think you hit on you hit on something important, right? Which is that like this is a much more resolute death, yeah. Right? Like there's something very intentional about every single piece right, of it. Yeah. Like that there's no like panic. There's no flailing. It's just like all right. Well, fine. You can take my son, but. I am still going to choose the manner of my own death. And this is what I've chosen. Yeah. I personally think that the Palantir is the main driver here. I think if you take the Palantir and Sauron out of the equation, this wouldn't happen. But I think what it emphasized was really that feeling and thought in Denethor of like, 
oh my god, this king of nobody is going to walk in here and steal my throne. And then he realizes, well, it's not like I have a son worthy to pass it on to. Oh, Faramir. Um, And uh, because, you know, in his mind, Boromir was the one who was going to take over. And he would rather set himself on fire than one, pass the throne over to Aragorn or see Faramir and not Boromir take the throne and so I think that's like a you know like a a big point of like his own pride within himself of like his family lineage being the lords and leaders of Gondor and that being like ripped away from him yeah one of the things I thought was interesting about that was that like he's got this he's got the Palantir and he's got Sauron talking to him through the Palantir um kind of wrecking his mind and wrecking his understanding of what's going on but then like it it that explanation for like how he behaves leaves a couple things leaves like a couple loose ends that I think are like pretty dangly. Like in, in particular, the fact that he has this whole interchange with Gandalf where he says, I'm choosing to die right now. And Gandalf says, it's not your authority to decide when you die. Like that's, and he specifically says it's not within the authority of the steward of Gondor to choose the hour of his own death. And Denethor is like, fuck you. It is. And I was like, interesting because it's like, that's, is that like an indictment of like a monarchy system that like you can like you really can give someone too much power and like you have you like you have no one to hold them accountable (laughs) well what does he mean by that what does he mean you don't have the authority like is he saying that the king doesn't have the authority or is he specifically saying you are a steward who has been tasked with like doing this until the king comes back and that's why you don't have the authority Well, I think because of what Gandalf says about, like, he goes on to say that the last time anyone did this kind of, like, self-immolation, it was back when there were, quote-unquote, heathen kings that were ruled by, they were basically under the aegis of Mordor, right? They were totally um, under Mordor's rule, and so they were, like, they, they they were doing this as part of their kind of despair and their, like, their subservience to Sauron. And it's almost like Gandalf is saying part of being a king is you don't do this. Uh, which I think is interesting. It's like Tolkien is laying out here some like really qualified, big qualifiers for being a monarch. Like you really, there are certain things that you cannot choose. And I was like, interesting that like he does that. And then Denethor kind of like lays out in a, a, a very clear kind of example of like why that's not, you, you, I guess you can't rely on a, actual kings to, or autarchs to do that. I mean, I'd like to remind both Gandalf and Denethor that he like he could have just walked out into the battle and died and no one would have said anything. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say no, because I don't know that I totally agree that Tolkien is saying or that he always takes a critical view of monarchs making that decision, because look at Eowyn, right? One of my big gripes with Eowyn for context, Mary Clay, is that I was annoyed about the fact that she gets put in charge of all of her people and then is like, but what about my personal glory and my ability to die in battle? And I was like, girl, you have a responsibility. And she doesn't ultimately, like, that's not ultimately what goes through her head when she has her big moment on the battlefield. But she does, right? Like, she goes out there basically to choose death as a member of the royal family, as somebody who has been told, you are potentially going to lead all of our people if both of us die in battle. And that's fine. Yeah, but why does she have to be that one? I mean, Theoden and Aomer 
both go into the battle. Yeah, also go out to die in battle, and that is also fine. So it's like very specifically, you can die in some ways, or like you can basically choose to go out and like... I, you know, and I think it's a great comparison of of leaders and rulers because on the other side of the gates, at, like as this is currently happening, Theoden is having his mm-hmm. last stand and being actually, if I recall in the book, doesn't he like get crushed to death by his own horse or something? It's pretty awful. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so like not as glorious as in the movie or whatever. But um, like as we speak, Theoden King Theoden is out there fighting with his people, and that's how he dies. Whereas here is Denethor hiding behind walls and going out in such a cowardly manner to take his own son's life when his own son could be living and healed if he would just give him those resources and take him to healers. And, you know, I think it's I'm thinking about like also Tolkien's real life experiences with the war of like him watching like these everyday boys they were young very young men dying all around him on the battlefield and then there are these like power authority figures who never who who are giving these commands who never have to go out and experience that and so like I'm sure that influenced some things too of looking at like how these authority figures in Lord of the Rings react to battles and like going out with their own people versus not. And so, like, I feel like in this moment, Gandalf is being like, how dare you choose to die up here by yourself of your own volition when there are your people down there on the battlefield who you didn't give a choice. They have to go out there and fight and they don't get to choose whether they live or die because that's up to whatever happens on the battlefield. That's just like the fates. And you could be also on the battlefield or you could be, you know, commanding in a more, I don't know, effective position or doing something to help. And instead, you are actively choosing to die when there are people fighting to defend you and your city. Like, how dare you? I I was going to say, maybe that's like what Tolkien is saying here is that like, you know, it's uh, it's perfectly fine to go out and, you know, crucify yourself in the in the battle against your enemies as long as you do as long as you're willing to give as good as you you know require your people to give but if you're like requiring your people to give something that you yourself are too afraid to do right where you're such a coward that like you would Mm -hmm. rather just stay at home and like make this choice and you know burn in this beautiful spectacle that you know in theory goes down in history and is recorded along with the history of kings then you really have no place doing doing monarchy, and I guess I I don't think that Tolkien is necessarily a critic of monarchs, but I I do think that the story here, as it plays out, is kind of implies that maybe monarchy is not a great system because there's supposed to be all of these like checks that prevent someone like Denethor from doing something like this, and he just goes as he he just does it. Yeah, yeah. Denethor is also really isolated, though. Like I think. You had a good point about, like, everybody has had a good point about Theoden being, like, out there with his people. His death is very different from Denethor's. But I do think there's also that piece of, like, what happens to people when they're cut off from any sort of support and what happens when you're cut off from any kind of, like, 
connection or other people who are willing to give you that feedback. Something that came up a couple of chapters ago was Denethor is standing there with all of his captains, not just Faramir, and is like, is there someone among you who would still do his lord's (sighs) orders? And nobody fucking says anything until finally Faramir is like, yeah, I guess I'll go for the, like, suicide mission. Right? But it's like all of these people who don't do shit. So, like, that piece, too, I think is not necessarily Denethor's fault, seems like it's more a reflection of Gondor systematically. Minus 10 points for the Prince of Dol Amroth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. But Wanda, you had also had a really good point about, like, Gandalf kind of facilitating that lack of connection or, like, lack of information that I was hoping you would elaborate on, because we all know I love to dunk on Gandalf. (laughs) Oh my god, he's the most fun to dunk on. Like, he's the most powerful (laughs) and also sometimes the most useless character in the series. Yes, they know what I think here, there's a really interesting moment at the end of the chapter, right, where where Gandalf has like, a, he has like an O moment where he goes, oh, uh, Denethor, it turns out, like had a seeing stone and was getting all of this, you know, uh, really intimidating, uh, semi false information from Sauron uh, about Sauron's powers. And that's, I guess, what eventually broke his mind. And you're, you're like, yeah, no shit. But also, like, it's not great because Gandalf himself was like actively withholding information from Denethor about what they were doing and what they were coordinating. And so the only perspective that Denethor was able to get um, of, of Gandalf's priorities and his activities and his policies, as Denethor calls them, was the perspective that he was getting from Sauron. So it's it's an interesting like it's an interesting moment where you can see you can kind of read between the lines and you can see, oh, Gandalf's strategy here has really maybe failed. I think the the thing that I really like about this particular representation of this character in this sequence is that he's Denethor is by far not the only character that we have seen in a hopeless situation, right? Whether Gandalf tells him anything or not, we have several characters who one Gandalf has withheld <laughs> critical information from. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> and two, we see I mean almost every main major character at some point in the series in a situation that seems absolutely hopeless. And especially with when you contrast it with like Frodo and Sam, like their every moment seems hopeless, right? Every single thing that they're doing seems hopeless. And so I actually kind of like that Tolkien gives us this like it's not that it's not that everybody ever is a hero and continues to make the choice to keep taking steps forward some people don't right some people just some some people decide to stop set themselves on fire yeah Yeah, no two people are not on fire as we know (laughs) those choices are valid Uh, I, i just like it as a contrast to what otherwise would maybe be a, a fairly like universal and bland story of a lot of heroes taking action that we get to see like a character who chooses not to right and a character who is more complicated than just like somebody who is a coward or somebody who is refusing to stand up but maybe somebody who when confronted with what he sees as the absolute hopelessness of his situation is just like Okay, I'm out. (laughs) The other interesting thing is that Gandalf pretty explicitly says, like, I might have been able to save Theoden if I could have gone there instead of going to stop Denethor. 
But there is a moment at the beginning of the chapter where he's about to go and follow the Witch King and Pippin is like, I need you to come here instead. And I've always in my mind thought of this as like the obvious, like, of course Gandalf's going to save Faramir. But I was reading this and I was like, why does he decide to do this? Because it does seem like fairly important to follow the Witch King and see where he's going and maybe save, you know, some fairly important characters. Like, why does he suddenly decide that Faramir is so important that he needs to abandon everything and go and rescue him? Other than the fact that we love him because he's Faramir. But. I mean, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the real thing. Um, is that he is the perfect cinnamon roll of a boy who can do no <laughs> wrong. Absolutely not. Um, I mean, I think it's because, like, he knows that on the battle, like, there are all these people on the battlefield and they at least have a chance together. Whereas if he doesn't help Denethor and Faramir, they will both 100% die. So he's like, okay, if I... If I go and help them, there's a good chance I, you know, we can come out of this together in one piece. But if I turn them, there's like, there's no turning back. Like, I won't be able to undo this. Does Gandalf know at this point what where Aragorn is or whether he's alive or not? Surely not. Because at this point, Aragorn is being like, he's at like peak angst and mystery. <laughs> and Gandalf is always a mystery of a character so it just would not surprise me at all if these two have had zero communication about either of their plans yeah planning has not been a strong suit in this series (laughs) yeah gandalf implies that he's pretty confident aragorn is still alive like he talks to denethor about aragorn as though Aragorn is definitely at some point going to make it to Gondor. I don't think he knows exactly where he is or what he's doing, yeah. but I think he's reasonably confident that he's okay. Well, the and the reason I asked that question, right, is because I totally agree. I think it makes sense to, like, save two people you know you can save versus mm-hmm. go out into a battle and you don't know what happens. But at the same time, like, it's not like Gandalf thinks that Gondor is forsaken if Denethor and Faramir die, right? Because... Aragorn is coming. That's true. He will, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently, appa- it, even if he doesn't, the Prince of Dol Amroth is in charge. Who knew that? I don't know. But <laughs> Gandalf makes puts him in charge at the beginning of the okay. chapter. I think you just missed it because... I was so drunk when I read this. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what... I am like whenever I read Tolkien and like I read it sober. So, so like <laughs> all the time. Ta- Especially like, I'm sure now with the Silmarillion, you're just like, huh, woohoo, when? Oh my God. <laughs> I will say, so I read, I recorded earlier today for a Silmarillion chapter and coming back to like plain old Return of the King after reading the Silmarillion, <laughs> I was just like, oh my god like it's just like four <laughs> characters and just like one thing is happening like this is great i'm like oh piece of cake this is easy like <laughs> while no the tolkien wrote it like so many different levels right that you can like he has he has all this stuff in his mind and it can be articulated as like uh like a biblical style or like almost talmudic style like silmarillion or it can be uh kind of complicated like lord of the rings story or it can be like a children's story because for us, like reading The Hobbit right now, I feel like that's just a children's oh, tale. It's- yeah, it's so easy to read The Hobbit, especially if you've like 
read the Silmarillion or Lord of the Rings first. Like reading The Hobbit is just like this is what what an enjoyable lighthearted tale. Right. Like, <laughs> this is wonderful. So, yeah. Mary Clay, I had I had a question for you actually. Um and this is kind of a big picture question. It, which is just that like so y- you you've read you read so many of like different like Tolkien's different works at this point. Is there a particular like a take or interpretation or a theory about his work that you've heard um, that has like particularly surprised you or like the most, I guess the most intense one that you've heard. I don't think I've gone too much into like particular angles or takes or anything just because I was so focused on like learning the story as it happened, like for the first time and just getting like all those facts straight. Um, I think the things that like, I don't know, like shocked me or surprised me were just like the intensity of really awful people on the internet, just like incels basically who are like Lord of the Rings is like is a representation of Europe's mythology as it should have been written. And that's why we can't have black elves and all this like other stuff. And it's like, this is supposed to be a history of our people because we never got a mythology for the English people and all this stuff. And I'm just like, that's just such an icky (laughs) way to read a series where like trees talk, man. (laughs) Like, like they're, they're like, dragons and 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 elves and there's a all-powerful ring that gets destroyed in a volcano like and eagles are giant and people fly on top of them but like you say that this is based in like the hit the real hard facts history of europe like what, like what and so just like such an unenjoyable and so I guess that's like one thing that like was so terrible to discover so I'll counter that with like a more positive way which is that I've really um enjoyed hearing interpretations and like more about the lin the like queer lens of of Lord of the Rings and reading this as a story of like Sam and Frodo's love for each other um if anyone's ever interested in like learning more and diving more into that Molly Knox Ostertag is a wonderful person who I recommend following and looking into she's she wrote like a whole deep article about like the importance of this being a uh, like queer love story and um, like all of these really tender moments that are actually romantic. And so that's been a really wonderful way to like look at the story at like certain aspects of the story. That's what I find so, so amazing, though, about the people who choose to see this with such a narrow view of like, like, oh, this is European or this is about like, you know, white people's mythology or whatever they're saying. I don't know. I don't follow incels online, but... You know, I don't either, but somehow they f- they find me. I'm sure, me. I'm sure. I mean, you're you're in the Tolkien sphere now. But um but I think it's so interesting that they decide to take that view when what I find attractive about this universe and and Tolkien's like what he's set up is look, I'm not going to 
pretend that there's nothing wrong with some of the things he says. I mean, we've found some pretty abject racism in this series. But at the same time... Oh, yeah. You mean how the bad people have dark skin (laughs) and the good people have light skin? What? No, there's nothing wrong about that. (laughs) Yeah, but that's the thing that I find, like... I find appealing about the series is that there are so many ways you can interpret like the characters and their relationships to each other. And there are like, I mean, the fact that the three of us or the four of us, I guess, could come to this from such different places and such different times in our lives and such different backgrounds. And then like, we all are drawn to this thing for some reason. I think that's more of a testament to how open the work is to being interpreted, not how closed off it is to being interpreted, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, like we had we had Emil, my friend Emil, on the podcast uh, uh, earlier. Was it earlier this season or was it last season for two? Towers? It was last season. Yeah, yeah. And Emil season. was talking about like how he got into Lord of the Rings, like while he was like a young person, like going in and out of the juvenile justice system, right? Like, there's so many different like entry points to the series that there's. It's really like it's um there are a lot of other people who are into it now besides, you know, people that are reading it as a, you know, colonial fantasy or whatever else it might be. Yeah. And you know, I should say I think it's always like the minority, like those people who are the loudest because they're the most outraged about how the world works today and so I think like those people who have such narrow minds are not actually like representative of that of the the group of people who read and watch this story and enjoy it you know i i think that the when i was reading this chapter i got some of actually in all of the gondor chapters i have found like a home for my own cynicism about how my own cynicism about how the world works today because gondor is like you know, like this kind of faded empire that like used to be great. And um, like its people are experiencing like it's, you know, the people that rule it have this kind of misplaced sense of power. And they're, they just believe that they, you know, the principle of governing itself is important, but they don't actually care about their people. And I'm like, Oh, that reminds me of some countries I live in. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so I think like there, there are like many interesting ways to read these chapters without like, yeah, there, there's plenty of cynicism, I think, that can be reaped from the books. Um, Where's our Aragorn, Wanda? Where is he? <laughs> where's our Faramir? Probably <laughs> yeah. fucking around in the north still with yeah. the rangers. <laughs> that bastard. No, that's that's a, a really... I think, like, the, the relevance of the things that happen in this story, like, all this time later, is definitely what keeps people interested in it. You know what, though? The thing, so our problem that like we continually have in the real world is that we constantly look to leaders as if they are like our Aragorn. And we're always like, oh, my God, at last you've come to save us. Mm-hmm. Whereas what what's the reality of this story? Who saves everything? The everyday little guy just doing what he is trying to do best for the world no matter how hard it is. And so like I think that's it always it always comes back to those those damn hobbits of like 
they are the smallest and they have the least amount of power, but Mm -hmm. they have so much compassion and like more like morality within them that like they are the ones to go out and do this thing. And so I think that's what we all need to like remember is that it's not going it's not always going to be some big leader sometimes you have to like do things yourself and work with other people to uplift each other and form your own fellowship to fight for a cause that you you care about you know yeah. you're right i asked the wrong question what i meant was what's our mount doom and how do we get there <laughs> <laughs> yeah like where's our fr- yeah like where's Frodo? Yeah. <laughs> And Tolkien does a really good job, too, of, I think, seeding throughout the story these characters who seem minor, but who make small choices or take small actions that end up having, like, pretty significant consequences. And we actually get oh one of gosh, those, yes. right? Like, in this chapter with Baragon. Oh, I'm a big Baragon fan. Making the decision that yeah, Baragon stands, him. right? Like, we're a, yes. we're a Baragon fan club here. Um, but... Like, that decision, right, from a character who's minor enough that none of us remembered that he existed until we got to the books because he doesn't exist in the movies. And it wasn't like, oh, no, where's Baragond, right? And where's his his son, Gerbil? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, right. Uh, But, like, that decision that he makes is what lets Gandalf and Pippin reach Faramir in time. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's lots of other moments like that throughout the story. So I think it's even like, even if you don't have a big quest, you can still, by making good oh, choices, so yeah. right, like have this bigger impact. Because I think we also maybe sometimes get stuck in like, but what's my calling? Like, what's my like one big thing? And it's like, sometimes it's not a big thing. Sometimes you aren't the person who gets asked to take the ring to Mount Doom. Sometimes you just have to like decide that something is important enough that you're going to take a small risk. And that's still important. It would have been great to see Baragon be a character in the movies because he goes on such a journey from getting to know Pippin when they're in the same, when he's like assigned to take him around Minas Tirith and show him around to this moment when he has to slay the guard um, outside the, the, what, I don't know what the area is called in Minas Tirith, but he, he kills them because he's in this moment of panic. And then afterwards, when they're coming back out, he goes, wow, I, I think I did what I had to do, but I'm never going to stop thinking about that. That's such a, I think it's mm-hmm. just fascinating and beautiful, like character arc. And I wish that that had been in the movies. Navia, I think it was you who said like, uh, Baragond is Gondor's Hama or gambling yeah <laughs> that's that was spot on yeah. hama because i was a big hama fangirl too so i was really sad when he died but but i'm glad to see him replaced by a gondor version in baragond yeah. i also like his chapter of just showing pippin around and like l- the little mini tourism break for gondor was like one of my favorite little asides in this whole story because it felt like a real like calm before the storm moment and it was it was i don't know it was like genuinely charming to see Pippin interact with someone that way yeah yeah that that part was great i really enjoyed that we are i was gonna say we're at 50 minutes so here's a question do we want to take another couple minutes and talk about anything broader than the chapter or do we want to do quick fire 
I'm literally the most indecisive person in the world. So like, so the just al- the alternative to quick fire, I think, <laughs> is that we all ask you questions because there we go. I'm at least very curious about your experience doing this for the first time. Let's maybe settle on one question. So Naviev, you have a question that you want to end on. Because I think, Wanda, you yeah, have go a chance for it. to ask some questions, yes? Yeah, Navya, uh, you go for it. Oh, the pressure is now on. If not, we will just talk about Swole Gandalf for the next <laughs> five minutes, and then we can call it good. Oh, my God! Because That's like, something that was kept out of the movie. <laughs> what's, right? what's the line? Is that, like, Gandalf, like, cast off his cloak, and it was revealed that he was very strong? Swole. <laughs> <laughs> it was revealed that he had major was gains Gandalf- that day. <laughs> Gandalf revealed the strength that lay hid in him. And both Navia and I got to that part and independently were just like, Swole Gandalf. Swole Gandalf confirmed. It reminds me of a moment in the third Hobbit movie. Um, there is a battle happening between, I think it's Sauron and then like the ghosts of the ring wraiths that mm-hmm. haven't been formed yet. I don't know. And uh Gandalf is like almost dead and Galadriel just like dead lifts him <laughs> and it's like so clearly you know not Ian not Kate Blanchett carrying Ian McKellen <laughs> and it's like a dummy and CG and it's just like where did Galadriel <laughs> get all this strength to just deadlift a grown man. Well, it's not clear that Gandalf actually is corporeal in every sense, right? Maybe he's more like a shell of a person. <laughs> Are we doing quick fire now? <laughs> I don't know. No, I just felt like that was the one thing. I was like, I don't know if we all have quick fires, but we've got to get Swole Gandalf in there somehow. Okay, all right. All right. I have I have yes. a, a, a final question to ask you, Mary Clay, which is okay. that... I think that all of us have, like, a nostalgic value that we attach to this work. So we're not, like, clearly able to separate that from whether we truly enjoy this writing and whether we are actually invested in this story. So given that you found this much later on and that you're much more recently, like, you know, entered this universe that Tolkien has created... Like, I guess this is a two-part question. One, do you think this is genuinely good? Like, do you think this is a good work of fiction? Do you think that this is good writing? And then two, do you feel that the the amount of love and hype around this series is justified given what it is? Um, <clears throat> I'll answer the second one first, which is like a very simple yes. I absolutely think that's justified because... Tolkien, like whether or not you like this story, whether or not you enjoy reading the books or watching the movies or, or anything, Tolkien laid such a found a solid foundation for the fantasy genre. It's truly outstanding. Like we would not have the fantasy stories and books and movies and in video games. We wouldn't have D and D if it weren't for what Tolkien did. And I also think just in general, he did so much for just like writing and, and reading in the world of like publishing and books, just like in general. So he create he had such a legacy and I think it's absolutely deserved. And I think the movies also um I I think 
I don't I, because I don't have that nostalgia when I watched them on my like high definition television in the year 2020. There were definitely a few points where I was like, that that doesn't look great. That looks like it could be like a 3D ride at Bush Gardens, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> uh, like that being said, I think the level of work and detail that went into the movies is also deserved and that like they deserved those I think Return of the King got like a clean sweep of Oscars that year which is so crazy to think about like what if like Avengers Endgame clean sweeped the Oscars it would be like the equivalent thing um so I think that's totally deserved and then I've already forgotten the first part of the question (laughs) I guess just do you think this is a good book like these are good books um yes so that is the I think his writing is of a time that we are like our brains are no longer really adapted for and Lord of the Rings is an excellent story it's a great story with great characters his writing is strong it's beautiful but it is not an enjoyable read. <laughs> like if I were to be, if you were to be like, hi, you're going on vacation. Would you rather read Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? I would probably pick Harry Potter because it's a much easier read. If you want to challenge yourself a little bit, then sure, read Lord of the Rings. But I think it's like, it's just of a totally different time because it was written you know 70 50 years ago and so I think our at least I I, I'm totally speaking for Mm -hmm. me totally speaking for me maybe there are people out there who are just like I loved my high school English class and reading Jane Austen and that's the way my brain is adapted but when I read Tolkien I feel like I have I'm translating what he wrote into like modern speech for my own dumb brain you know (laughs) no no, i I actually agree with this i was like one i was maybe the strongest holdout on that point of the three of us because like when we began the podcast i was like oh yeah like the prologue like totally necessary like loved every minute of it um but i think like (laughs) you really only get like one or two skills in this life and tolkien was so good at world building like it doesn't make sense that he would also have like had time to translate and edit and refine everything like everything that he put down on the page, right? Yeah. I guess I've been surprised on this reread at, at how many like things that I would consider the basic mechanics of fiction writing that are just like not in this story where I'm just like, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Homeboy has never like they're so um I have uh friends in the publishing world and I've had them on the podcast for a few episodes and they're like, oh, yeah, like if this manuscript was submitted to us today, we would cut like this entire like three fourths of this chapter because you don't have a character. Like, I think it's like the second chapter of Fellowship of the Ring where Gandalf comes in and he just like vomits exposition <laughs> onto Frodo. And like, that's not how you do writing <laughs> these days. You are supposed to like show don't tell and like weave it in intricately and have these details revealed like strategically and casually throughout the story but Tolkien's like nah we're gonna sit down and give you all the details right now man I mean not to like unnecessarily prolong this but I guess I like I feel like there is a really good way to do the like three quarters of a chapter just to exposition it's just that he doesn't do it (laughs) right like (laughs) 
Like, if you read, like, Susanna Clark, if you read, like, you know, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, there's, like, tons of things that are like that in that book. And she has, like, page-long footnotes. But it just works in a way that, like, not all of the exposition stuff works in this book. Yeah. Well, and I think it kind of comes down to, again, there are several technical skills that Tolkien is very good at. And uh, finding a good editor clearly was not a skill that he had available to him and self-editing his own. You mean him reading to his son every night and taking his son's feedback was not a good editing mechanism? Yeah. (laughs) Edited by a child. And yet here we all are reading it anyways. I'm going to recommend to you guys, if you haven't already, watch on, look on YouTube. Um, it's a, a comedy sketch called Hobbit Milk. Oh, boy. Um, and it it's the premise of Tolkien walking into the office of his editor. Um, oh, boy. And I'll just leave it at that. It's a wonderful sketch. And I actually had um, the uh, comedian who wrote it and performed it on for an episode as well. So... Uh, I ha- it's one of my favorite internet videos. <laughs> well, and hey, I think on that note... Thanks to Mary Clay for coming on our podcast. I mean, I, this was super fun. I think, like, it's so exciting to me to talk to somebody who, like, newly discovered these works and doesn't have the same, you know, just emotional ties to it that we do because I think yeah. you brought in some really interesting perspective because of that. So mm-hmm. thanks for thanks for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you guys for for having me on. Um, you gave me a welcome break from the Silmarillion, <laughs> so this was fun to like go back and read this. I-, I would say this part of the story is like the peak chaos, where like on one side of the walls of Gondor you have Denethor setting himself on fire, and then on the other side you have the Witch King being slayed. So it's just like a great part of the story. So I'm glad I got to chat about it with you guys. Yeah, it was wonderful to have you. For sure. Is there anything you want to like um, plug? Obviously, everybody, please check out Mary Kay's podcast. That's what I'm talking about. It's a great... Uh, she's already on the Silmarillion, which is more than we can say for ourselves. So <laughs> it, it is a great show. Uh, that's not uh, happening. <laughs> I was going to say, don't... Yeah, don't do it if you... The only reason I'm doing it is because I've never done it and I like won't oh, ever do it again. Most of so. us have never done it either. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. I'm the only one who's read the Silmarillion and I basically don't remember anything. So that's it's a good it's a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, anything you want to you want to shout out? Yeah, listen listen to that's what I'm talking about. New episodes every Tuesday wherever you get podcasts. Uh you can follow me on Twitter at @mcwhatsup. Um that's also my TikTok handle and I'm on Instagram at @mcturndownforwhat. Excellent. And we will tag. So listeners, if you're finding us on social media, we will, of course, tag those handles in our tweet so that you can find that's what I'm talking about, though I would hope that you are already listening to it. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Ashani. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. And if you like what you hear, please give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to.